News. 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 New York City. FAQ NYC podcast getting more and more interesting by the minute. FAQ. It's FAQ NYC. I'm Harry Siegel in Brooklyn here with Professor Christina Greer, also in Brooklyn. Hello. Hello there. Hey. And we've got tons of fun New York City and state stuff to discuss. Later in the episode, you'll be hearing from Julia McDonald Nieto del Rio of Documented about non-citizen voting coming back to New York City. But why don't we start off with water? Yes, Harry. So if our listeners remember last week, I sent out an impassioned plea to call or um, go on the website for 311 so you could test your water quality after I saw this amazing play at the public called Colored Water about the Flint crisis. I um, I called because I, I thought it was time to get my, my water tested. And, you know, they obviously test the pipes underneath the city, pipes leading into your home and then where you're building and then the pipes leading right into your apartment. Um, and so it's very helpful for you to know what kind of water is coming out of the pipes. And it's also very helpful for the city to know what water is coming out of your pipes, whether you're in Kensington or Crown Heights or whatever part of the city. So I did it and it's great. The only issue is, you know, you have to make sure your pipes are are stagnant for six hours. So I suggest when you turn off the water in the evening, um, doing it first thing in the morning. And all you have to do is just you fill up one, you turn on your cold tap, you fill up one bottle, you let the tap run for two minutes, then you fill up the second bottle. You close them, they they give you the sticker, they give you the postage, they even give you the stickers to seal back up the box so you don't even have to find stickers or tape. And then you just drop it off at your mailbox. That's it. They make it so easy for you. And all you have to do is just fill out what time you, you, um, you ran the water, which faucet, kitchen or bathroom. That's all they want to know. And then they ask you some questions about like pipes in your home or your apartment building. Most of those answers I did not know. And they give you a don't know option. And the whole process took maybe five minutes, tops, tops. So after Professor Greer brought this up last week, after we had an episode (laughs) bringing this up two years ago, I I stepped up, called 311 and have my cardboard box. I have not opened. And and, and hearing how simple this is, I feel very guilty. I am going to open the box. Really, the only remaining step I have, I've been thinking about this for, for years now. Uh, relates to the uh, Wyclef Jean, Mary J. Blige, 2000 hit, 911, yes. and what a 311 remix to that would sound like. Ooh, we should get Cardi B and who's another New York, a beloved New York figure, um, just to update it. We'll think about that. Hopefully our listeners will send us a, a message, tweet us. Uh, if you think who should do the updated, someone please call three one one to get your water tested. And shout out to Ibrahim Abdul Mateen who put this on our radar two years ago. I think it's just you know what I like, Harry. This reminds me of the NYC ID, which we asked all of the mayoral candidates who came on the show. You know, this was something that the NYC ID was something that Bill De Blasio asked all of the residents in New York to do, just as a collective effort to make sure we could protect our undocumented neighbors. Um, in the event that the Trump administration came after them. And I feel like calling 311 or going online for 311 and getting your water tested is something that you can do not just for your family, but for the greater collective. Like you don't know if you'll be able to catch something in your neighborhood where the city 
it will be forever grateful for you to sort of say, okay, well, these pipes are a little leachy or whatever it may be. Uh, and we can, we can sort of add to our collective responsibility as New Yorkers by doing something literally, I wouldn't, I wouldn't exaggerate. It did not take more than five minutes from start to finish. And the, when I tell you the instructions, whoever wrote the instructions, I'm always so fascinated with these processes. Whoever wrote the instructions did a phenomenal job. I mean, there's nothing worse than, you know, when you're at the airport and you're like, who, who designed this place, right? It's like, it's like a terrible Starbucks or something where it's just like no signage and everything just looks terrible. This was fill out line number one. Fill, if, you know, fill out line number three. This is what you put. I mean, it was so simple. And on the back, if you need assistance, they have um, directions in other languages and, and uh, resources in case English is not your first language and you don't uh, read English. Uh, you can do it in a host of other ways. So speaking of queer and useful processes and things New Yorkers can participate <laughs> in, Let's talk real briefly, i try to do this in one breath, about the city council speaker's race, which, for starters, is not a race any of y'all can vote in. The only people who can vote are the newly elected speaker members. Uh, secondly, they can spend money on this, but that money doesn't get disclosed until months after the race is done because it's not a real race and voters aren't involved and there's quarterly disclosures usually. So all the money's secret until it's too late for any of it to matter. Um, Eric Adams, the incoming mayor, said, I'm not going to get involved in this. Uh, it turns out he's gotten very involved um, <laughs> right. and is pushing hard. Yeah, oops, for, for, or his people are pushing hard. And he says, without naming him, I've made clear who I would like, but it's not my choice to make. But I'm telling people uh, that he would like council member Francisco Moya, who is extremely unpopular for, for sometimes personal reasons with, with a lot of his fellow council members. This is also the one decision they get to make where, where the mayor's got nothing to do with it. So there's pushback. Um, most of the other leading candidates to this point, have now withdrawn, uh, including uh, Justin Brannon, Diana Ayala, Keith Powers, and uh, Gail Brewer, uh, who's newly reelected to the council. And they're all backing Adrian Adams at Queens. It looks like she has the Queens and Bronx organizations behind her. And if they bring all their members, then that's that. But, 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 they'll vote. Uh, and we'll know what happens after that. Um, it's for maybe the second most powerful position in the city and everything in the meantime ends up as a rumor and noise. So it's both a, a consequential moment and one that it's hard to get too much uh, insight into until the thing actually happens. Plus we're back in this weird cycle where the council members actually have two year terms. And then we have to go through this whole rigmarole again uh, because we have the, uh, uh, the census and the, uh, and, and the once every 10 years redistricting coming right up. Mm -hmm. So, I asked you and Katie this last week, and I'm curious um, to know if your response has shifted since it seems like we're on a, a weekly basis of who's in the lead with this speaker's race. How much does borough matter, you know, since the top three offices are Brooklyn, 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 and all men? Does the speaker council's race really depend on someone not being from Brooklyn right now? Like how important is that for say some of the 51 members? Well, Adrian Adams is from Queens and 
often the speaker ends up coming from Manhattan because two of the three out of the Brooklyn, Bronx, and Queens organizations, such as they are, an organization is a real generous word here, especially for Brooklyn at this point, right? <laughs> um, pick pick someone from a different borough as a form of neutrality. There's also all of these represented uh, representation questions about whether or not the uh, speaker should be uh, um, Hispanic given that there are no Hispanics in, in prominent uh, citywide positions um, at the moment. There was a lot of hope uh, that we were going to have our first Hispanic attorney general statewide as Tish James left that office to run for uh, governor. We're going to come right back to that because mm-hmm. that tape just is kidding. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, and, and, and all these things come up in the public discourse about who gets this role. But again, it's really a, a, a back room, whether it's smoke filled or kale filled or whatever, or vape filled, whatever. Mm-hmm. Right. Mm-hmm. So, and, and how much does gender do you think factor into this decision? Because I saw that there was an open letter by certain women who are coming into the council saying that it's very important that there's, you know, gender parity and representation. Do you think that that's going to factor into some of these negotiations? And, it makes and will it harder Adams, for Adams. Yeah, but, well, I mean, will Adams have sort of a, a, an Achilles heel in the sense that he's tried to put his thumb on the scale for a male speaker when you have 31 of the 51 members of the council are women? Some obviously don't subscribe to descriptive representation in the same ways, but how how much do you think that's going to factor into some of the decision-making? It the makes world? it politically easier to reject Moya, who's already unpopular, and given that we have a male mayor coming in, a male controller, and a male public advocate, uh, at least for now, and uh, going on into the future, who's also assuming he doesn't governor. become governor. Yeah. So, 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 so having, having, having dudes across the board and a majority uh, not dude, or even lady, you could say, um, city council, like, it is easier to reject uh, a, a male candidate. Um, even with uh, the the mayor behind him, so so so. When Wait, you say hold you're on. Not did gonna... you just say? Did you just say dudes and not dudes? So I, I technically might. Well, my CBA should say I'm a not dude. <laughs> I love it. I'm stealing that. Like like th- th- these things uh, without being glib, gender and its instructions really are complicated. But we have guys running yeah. all the citywide offices. Yeah. And 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 and, and, and so having somebody who, who's who's not that who's not a straight guy, in fact. Uh, Right. Mm-hmm. Uh, um, running the council se- seems pretty reasonable in a city as uh, as as diverse as ours and where where you do want to have, I think, you know, a, a government that looks like uh, a lot of the city. And you have issues uh, when you. Yes. Don't. Well, I think and that's the really important Latino question. Right. I mean, the fact that we don't have any Latinx citywide or statewide representatives where. We know that we have such a significant and I would argue powerful Latino community, not just in the Bronx and northern Manhattan. And there should I would argue that there should be some sort of representation at some level. And we have to ask ourselves, how is it and what is our what are our institutional structures that are possibly preventing that? I did. You know, the only thing that sort of makes me a little stressed out is the possibility of having a Speaker Adams and a Mayor Adams and the clarity that we needed from the press and everyone else when we were talking about Adams and and actions and behaviors. It's like, you can't text me and just say, I need to talk to you about Adams. Which one? (laughs) (laughs) It would be an Adams family, right? Um, So shifting, pivoting really quickly because I think a lot of people were excited about the possibility that Eric Gonzalez would 
leave, possibly leave the Brooklyn DA's office and run for attorney general. Um, you know, he was the heir apparent under Ken Thompson, who is still beloved. And I mean, you you hear people talk about Ken Thompson. It's sort of like when you meet somebody from Chicago and the way they talk about Harold Washington. I mean, people really had a lot of love, respect and admiration for Ken Thompson and the fact that Eric Gonzalez seems to be carrying that banner. Um, puts him in the good graces, I, I think, of a lot of people, not just donors, but voters alike. And now that Tish James has decided that she is not running for governor, and Kathy Hochul was like, okay, Christmas came early this year. Zephyr Teachout has already decided that she's going to suspend her campaign. Uh, Eric, Eric Gonzalez is presumably not going to run. Uh, and so it looks as though Tish James will remain as attorney general. Uh, in the state of New York, what does that what does that say to you, Harry? It says uh, it's remarkable how how these games of musical chairs work. Mm-hmm. And then when somebody gets a, a take back, uh, which I'm told is is banned after third grade, but apparently not in this case. Uh, <laughs> Tish James has always had trouble raising money, um, and I think she had trouble getting money and institutional support. I think running as a uh, first with with our first woman governor and Kathy Hochul was going to be a harder lift. And as she's done a decent job of sort of just solidifying her position and no, I am actually the governor. You gonna have to go through me for this, this cycle. And she, she got out and w- w- was pushing hard and appearing all around the state and implementing policies rapidly. And, and, and James, I think wanted to line up money and institutional support first and had a fair amount of trouble doing that. And she's got a, a, a prominent and powerful position and decided she didn't want to give that up. Um, it's also much easier as a sitting elected, especially as a sitting governor to make promises to individuals. I mean, Kathy Ogle has been doing incredibly well with the donor class, but as far as like securing up towns and, you know, leaders in particular, elected leaders and non-elected leaders in particular towns and cities across the entire state, Kathy Hochul's in the catbird seat. I mean, she can say, as governor, I know what the budget looks like. I can make this preemptive promise in a way that Tish James just just couldn't. And, and she's made a handful of unforced errors to this point. Um, there was a couple of Cuomo people who she, she let stick around for a new cycle longer than she should, but then reversed herself. After Bill de Blasio did, did a remarkably ridiculous and, and, and stupid uh, coronavirus set of mandates, that take effect four days before he leaves office. She then followed suit with a mass mandate uh, statewide, which I, I honestly thought was was fine. But then when people were business uh, owners in particular and office people were upset about it, she said, oh, and, and county executives, she said, well, I did this mandate, but I'm also not going to enforce it. I mean, then, give me then a break. Just sit down. Don't mm-hmm. say anything. Mm-hmm. You're wasting mm-hmm. my time. And, no. and, and so to, to there she's had trouble, I think, finding out exactly where, where to position herself. But again, like the budget flows through her. She has so much power coming in, and and, and as a poll leader, that is just uh, it's hard for people to chip into that. Um, you know, Jumani Williams is hoping to. Um, speaking of which, by the way, if we had real general elections, I I I, I like Jumani. Um, I, I think he's got a lot of interesting things to say, and I wish him well. But he would have run against someone in a competitive race who would have said, "Why should anyone vote for you when you're planning to immediately leave this office and run for another one after the election?" Right. And he would have had to answer that. He was asked, but because it wasn't competitive, he never had to answer. And I do find that a little problematic. And because one's a city uh, seat and the other's a state seat, he doesn't have to give the one up to run for the other. Well, it's interesting. I always have this conversation with my students um, when we have the conversation about, should you be allowed to run for office 
sometimes simultaneously, right? We saw this with John McCain when he ran against Barack Obama. So you're running for Senate. You're also running for the presidency. Well, it's like, well, which one do you want, dude? Um, And so I think some of my students have always said, well, listen, if you're a public servant, you want to do this work, you hedge your bets. If, If one doesn't work out, then you get to keep the other. And then some folks argue, well, if you say you want to be governor, then you give up the safety net, and then you run for it. I think it's interesting that, you know, let's just, we know Tom Swazi's in, let's just say de Blasio will be in. Um, it'll be interesting to see this kind of Williams-Hokel matchup again. Both of them were running for lieutenant governor four years ago or three and a half years ago. Now they're both running for governor. It'll be interesting to see how many people, you know, Jumani did pretty well in that race. You know, Hochul is running with Cuomo effectively, and Jumani came within six points which was a really impressive showing, but in a really different context. Because one, no one really cares who the lieutenant governor is. And two, a lot of people had frustrations with Cuomo, and that was a safe way to register. And so that was my, that's the crux of my argument, Harry. We'll now see how many people were voting for Jumani or just against Cuomo. And I -hmm. think, you know, I call it the Bill Thompson argument, right? When When he ran for mayor, and it's like, Bill Thompson, you came close, but people weren't necessarily voting for you. They were voting to sort of send Bloomberg a message. And that's a very different scenario. So I'm curious to see the percentage, especially with, you know, our abysmal turnout. Um, but I'm, I'm curious to see the percent uh, uh, vote that Jumani um, receives. Because also, you know, fundraising in Brooklyn and fundraising in New York City looks differently when you're going um across the state. And obviously Buffalo, the primary in Buffalo looked great for progressive politicians. And then obviously the general election, which was a write-in. And we saw India Walton, the progressive candidate lose when people actually showed up to the polls, sort of might give us a little foreshadowing as to the appetite for progressive politics in New York state. We shall see. Um, I'll, I'll also see, it'll be an interesting needle to thread because Kathy Hochul is now running against two, possibly three men. And the way that they will try and yoke her to Cuomo will be very difficult. That's going to be a hard needle to thread in a way that Tish James could have said as a woman, you sat here for seven years knowing good and well who this man was and what he was doing, and you co-signed it. That's a different argument to make coming from a man. Mm -hmm. And we know that, you know, in political science literature, debating male-female debates have to take on a different tone. Remember when... Uh, Joe Biden was debating Sarah Palin famously. Like he's so much smarter than than she, but he also had to make sure he didn't come off condescending and you know paternalistic and all these ways that uh, male and female politicians on the debate stage have to understand and negotiate gender politics. It'll be fascinating to see how De Blasio, Swazi, and Jumani, who's been probably the most vocal against Cuomo, I well, Jumani and, and De Blasio, how they attach. Hochul to the Cuomo administration and the Cuomo antics and bad behavior. And then my last point is this. Let's also be clear with Tish dropping out of the race. There is no way that Andrew Cuomo ever would have let her become governor of this state. I think he would have used his last dollar and dying breath to make sure that this woman never became governor. Because realistically, her report, whether you you know subscribe to it or not, is what helped bring down not just one Cuomo brother, but two Cuomo brothers. Right. Because of Andrew Cuomo and his his antics and shenanigans and communicating with his brother, Chris Cuomo and CNN, both of them are now unemployed, largely due to that report. So I, I, I think that, you know, Tish being in the AG's office gives her a, a different kind of job security 
than running for governor. So a few other things to quickly run off. This current city council is trying to get some big stuff done on their way out that would lock in the uh, the council to come. Uh, this includes approving and rejecting various rezonings, uh, non-citizen voting, which they've now passed, and de Blasio's not going to veto, so, so that will exist, and a big UFT push for smaller class sizes, which generally is something that would be in the hands of the, uh, of the, the city and the state, not something the, the council would have the power to do, but they're setting this up as a public health issue that involves square footage per kid. And uh, consequently, would we, we, lock that in, which would mean sort of a massive increase in the uh, number of teachers and smaller classes. And it doesn't look like that's going to happen, but the odds are much better than, for instance, de Blasio's final push to pan the uh, carriage horses. No. <laughs> and then the the while that's happening, de Blasio, who again is eyeing a rife and eyeing a run for governor, is uh, just got hammered, or in fact. He got hammered in 2014 mm-hmm. and 2018, mm-hmm. and he kept it secret until now uh, by the Conflict of Interest Board, um, which said he kept soliciting funds from donors who had business pending before his administration. So on the one hand, this guy fucked around and found out. On the other hand, what this guy found out is none of this really has any significant political consequences so long as you're going to push past so long as with the Supreme court having more or less legalized corruption from the public officials point of view, where you can take all the gifts you want, as long as you're not doing a direct government action in exchange. And that means you can do all sorts of indirect government actions, have people over to your house, uh, talk with, uh, you know, talk with them about things. You just can't tell your commissioner, give them this contract. Your commissioner is not stupid. They can usually figure some of this out. And now we have Eric Adams coming in who, uh, you know, as, done some similar things as Brooklyn Borough president, including setting up an outside organization to advocate for his policy agenda that could raise funds, who's been traveling all around prior to coming in. And we found out he took one trip to Puerto Rico already with a uh, cryptocurrency billionaire, right when he suddenly said, I'm going to take my checks in cryptocurrency. And is that just back from Ghana where he says he's paid for this trip himself, (laughs) Uh, but also as a matter of policy, uh, his team told the times and possibly other outlets, they're not going to show any receipts. So this worries me a bit going forward. And I feel like any competent politician who understands how this law works now and how the Supreme Court has set this up, you know, is in a position to just uh, do a lot for a lot of donors and keep it all just barely legal, which is what de Blasio has said this week after this has come out. He said, I have lawyers telling me what to do. And they said, I did nothing wrong. There's no issue here. Even as you have these authorities, prosecutors, conflict of interest board, people flatly telling him what he's doing is wrong. So I, here's my concern, Harry. I feel like we've got two Icarus mayors, one leaving, one coming. And both of them just fly way too close to the sun for my taste. Um, And both of them, I think, lie by omission. And both of them lean on this line of legality, as I've said before, with some unsavory characters, and then play this sort of damsel, like, what? I I didn't know. And it's like, okay, so you did not, unless I lay it out explicitly, you're saying that you didn't know. And I feel like we just suffered under eight years of that. And I fear that we're in for four to eight more years. The Ghana trip, listen, if I had time, I would write about 
I know why Eric Adams went to Ghana. I get it. As a Black person, I totally get this sort of spiritual, like, let me shield and protect myself from all the nonsense and the onslaughts that I'm about to experience as the second Black mayor of the city of New York. I understand that. The piece where you lost me, Eric Adams, is now who paid for it? Who did you go to visit? You're sitting here, you know, with certain folks in Ghana. And it's like, why are you with them while you're in the motherland? Like, question after question after question, death by a thousand paper cups with. And he's given public speeches and hanging out with some some prominent New Yorkers, including members of the Orthodox community while he's there. So this is not like a personal spiritual retreat, just to summon his energies before coming in. No, it's a political, it was a political sort of, you're touching base with various folks and some folks who, you know, are, are former New Yorkers living in the motherland. So I think my exhaustion with de Blasio uh, as mayor and my exhaustion with de Blasio running for governor, where, listen, I think you're going to overplay your hand, Warren. I, I think you need to just sit this one out because if we remember, the feds didn't say you were innocent. The feds just said, we don't have enough right now. So They said he violated he, the spirit of the law. Specifically, they went out of their way to say that. They're like, we're real sad we're not charging this dude, but we're not. Well, we're not because we're going to go in the confines of law. And then you, after you sort of get a get-out-of-jail-free card, literally, right, early Christmas for you, you then run for the presidency. And there are a whole bunch of confusions about, you know, were you using mayoral time and police and staff and all this other stuff. And that's just kind of gone away. And now you're going to run for governor with the same muddied waters of fundraising and unsavory characters who assist you. So we've got de Blasio in this bucket, who I think might be a distraction. And as I've, as I am, I'm saying this as a political scientist, but I'm saying it with love from the heart to Bill de Blasio, do not Ray Nagin yourself. You are at a moment right now where you can sit down and not piss off the feds or anyone else and just You've been a great public servant. We get it. City council, you know, public advocate, mayor of New York City. Find something else to do. But I think that this might be the bridge too far where his luck runs out. And then we now have to sit here and deal with Eric Adams. Did he, didn't he, right? Jersey, not Jersey. Ghana, not Ghana. You know, as you've been writing in your columns that I've been reading word for word, it's like, are we about to just have kind of like this like mobster feeling administration? It's like, oh, it's not just Eric Adams. It's like you're bringing in cats where it's like you you guys have these, not a rap sheet, but you know, like the drama that has trailed you for years coming into City Hall. And the same drama in, in the case of Phil Banks. And again, Adams is very close with the Banks family, both uh, uh, David Banks, who's now going to be the uh, schools commissioner, and Phil and David's partner, Sheena Wright, who's running the transition. So I, I understand that 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 part and having an inner circle, but like Phil Banks is up to his ears in de Blasio era scandals. You know, he flies to Puerto Rico with four felons now, including his good friend Norman Seabrook, the uh, dirty uh, jails union boss, and three other guys, uh, Peralta and separately Regnitz and Reitberg, who were all bribing the outgoing mayor, among other things. Um, and, and so having someone who's, who's tight with the crew, whose bad judgment and uh, corrupt actions have, have had criminal consequences and, and, and just are troubling, uh, saying that's gonna, who's going to be in charge of public safety seems wildly outrageous to me. 
And, you know, on the record, on background, off the record, I'm just not getting any answer from the Adams administration. I find compelling about that. And, and I think there, there are potentially compelling answers and, and, and a case to be made, but they seem to just be up to do this as a fait accompli. And, oh, that's old news, except, yeah, it's old news to me. I followed these trials closely at the time. I, I bet you 99 out of 100 New Yorkers haven't heard the first word about it, and they're not going to be happy when they do. And uh, lastly, it's just uh, ominous with the police department in particular, where corruption is a real problem and a problem that touches on a lot of other real problems in terms of both uh, crime fighting, in terms of decency and in terms of integrity. When you're talking about having a fair and responsive NYPD that's really watching out for all communities, having that crossover with, with people who showed exceptionally bad judgment in the gifts they received, mm -hmm. whether or not there's anything criminal about that, I wouldn't know. I'm not a judge and I'm not an attorney. Uh, I'm not assuming there is, but like that, that is ominous. Well, you know, Harry, I think I agree with everything you said. I think you miss one key element, though, with this corruption stuff or potential corruption. It also affects participation. If people don't feel like their elected leaders are on the up and up, who have them at the forefront of their mind and activities, you would think logically, that it would motivate people to actually participate. But what we have seen in political science literature, and especially in New York over the past few decades, it actually makes people calcitrant, right? People recoil from this. So it's like, well, there it's a cesspool of degenerates. Why would I even participate? And so we've already seen this abysmal level of participation from the voting eligible population. And I'm concerned that this onslaught of individuals who have a long line of just questionable deeds and actions uh, makes it such that we'll have fewer and fewer people wanting to get involved in politics and the policies surrounding politics. So that is a perfect transition note to go into this quick conversation with Julia McDonald Nieto del Rio about non-citizen voting and the roughly 800,000 people that's going to let participate in local New York City elections going forward. Let's jump right in. So, Julia, the council has just passed this law for non-citizen voting. Uh, can you take us through the basics of this? Um, how many non-citizens we're talking about, uh, when they would uh, be able to uh, to vote, and what challenges may still be ahead before that can, in fact, happen in New York City elections. Definitely. Um, so last week, the council um, passed the legislation um, that means um, approximately um, 800,000 non-citizens or more um, would be able to vote in local municipal elections. So um, this means that lawful permanent residents, uh, so green card, green card holders, um, as well as individuals uh, with work authorization um, in New York um, can vote in local elections as long as they've lived here for at least 30 days. Um, so this will take effect in um, January of 2023, so still a little bit to go. Um, but Mayor de Blasio has signaled um, that, you know, he has some skepticism about the legislation, um, but he said he would not veto it. Um, so either, um, you know, this bill will pass uh, without his signature in um, 30 days or um, if he does sign the bill, uh, it will, it could become law sooner. So um, 
that's kind of a summary of the bill. Um, and and some um, people say it could still face some legal challenges. Opponents to the bill um, were uh, worried that possibly the city council did not have the authority to grant non-citizens um, the right to vote in local elections. And we're saying that this, this should legally be up to uh, the state. Um, other people said that wasn't the case, um, but uh, it's possible still that the that the legislation could face some legal challenges. I think it's almost certain it will. Uh, we'll see where those go. And of course, non-citizens could vote in New York in school board elections until we got rid of those right about at the uh, turn of the millennium. And uh, that, that was utterly uncontroversial at the time. Uh, one thing that stuck out to me with that 800,000 number is we just got through a mayoral election in which, in fact, just over a million people voted. And uh, turnout in New York is going to be abysmal. And one of the more interesting objections to this bill came from Lori Cumbo, who's a uh, ally, uh, a pretty tight ally generally of Eric Adams, who's vocally supported this bill. And her concern is that this is going to uh, dilute Black uh, African-American representation uh, just by, by bringing in all of these new voters. I, you know, I'd, I'd be interested in your, your thoughts politically and practically on all of that. Right. So uh, as you said, Harry, um, at the um, stated meeting, uh, Lori Cumbo uh, expressed some concerns um, about how this vote would affect uh, the African-American community, the African-American community um, and voters. Um, you know, uh, a lot of uh, city council members, what they said um, in opposition to that was that this vote was not um, meant to dilute anyone's vote or power to vote, but simply give more people um, a power and voice to vote in the city. Um, and that, um, you know, that would only be a positive change for uh, communities across New York. But yes, as you said, Lori Cumbo um, was very vocal and that she was um, nervous about how this vote would affect um, the African-American community um, and their power to vote. So, so let's sort of keep running through some of the concerns people have had. And of course, this legislation is getting passed by an outgoing city council, uh, a number of whom's members won't be back. And as they're sort of rushing to get through a series of, of potentially big things. Uh, one of the other concerns, I, th I think uh, Mark Gonash was the uh, was the main person pressing um, on the council is it, a question of who counts as a resident of New York for th these purposes and how that gets defined. Uh, how is that going to work and what is the debate about that been? Right, uh, so council member Mark uh, Jonay uh, did uh, bring, at the meeting he introduced a motion to recommit the bill um, to the Committee on Governmental Operations. And his concern was that um, 30 days uh, was too little of a time to give, um, 30 days of residency in New York City uh, was too little of a time for someone to live here and then um, have the power um, to vote. So, and that concern has also um, been brought up in the past couple of months and definitely at the stated meeting um, by a lot of folks saying that, um, you know, uh, 30 days may not be enough time um, for someone to uh, make these decisions about who's uh, representing them and their um, community. Um, ultimately, the, this motion um, to re recommit the bill back to committee did not pass at the stated meeting. Um, and if this motion would have passed, it actually, uh, as some council members stated at the meeting, 
um, would have been very detrimental to the bill because um, it was really important um, for, for proponents of the bill to pass this right now as a new um, city council was coming in. Essentially, uh, some city council members said they would have had to basically kind of start over on this bill um, if it if it would have been uh, sent back to committee. Um, but yes, that was a, a concern that was also brought up by many city council members saying, um, you know, 30 days is just not enough time for, for someone um, to kind of have the power to make these big decisions about um, who, who is representing them and the city, um, but advocates of the bill uh, obviously um, disagreed and, and this 30, at least 30 days, um, it's, it's passed as is. So as of now, um, you know, people, if they've lived in New York City for 30 days and have these other qualifications, they should be able to vote in local elections in 2023. And how does someone demonstrate that they've lived here for 30 days? Uh, like, like, what are the, uh, this worries me because our board of elections is so famously incompetent. Uh, I, I, I am sort of curious if there's any sense of present about how this is actually going to be administered. Yeah, um, I think that's also um, another uh difficulty that has come up. Uh, a lot of people have brought up what happens um, if the Board of Elections uh, kind of messes this up even individually for um, one person. I'm not totally sure actually how um, people show that they have lived here for um, 30 days, but um, that's that'll be a good thing to definitely keep an eye on. Um, and an another um, difficulty, especially with the Board of Elections, is just making sure that um, folks understand because uh, non-citizens still can't vote in uh, state or federal elections. Um, and if there was some mix up that, um, you know, they voted in something other than a municipal election, this could be very detrimental um, for their uh, immigration status. Um, and even down the line, the most negative consequence of that could be, um, you know, a change in their immigration status or, you know, even possibly um, deportation if that was, if there was a mix up and accidentally someone voted in different um, elections. But again, activists and advocates of the of the bill um, have been pushing for kind of very clear um, steps on um, how, you know, how this would uh, get out to communities and um, to show um, that this will, you know, they will only be voting in municipal elections. Um, rather than state or any federal elections. So, Julia, can you clarify um, how this does and does not mirror previous fights here about driver's licenses, foreign documented immigrants, and municipal ID cards, um, and who exactly, which groups and needing what paperwork this franchise, this city franchise would apply to? And then I have one closing question for you about the national implications. Right. So I think um, this legislation is kind of um, just one further step um, in that fight um, to give different groups of non-citizen voters uh, uh, different power in, in terms of making uh, local decisions and um, power in voting in local elections. Um, and to be very clear, uh, this group of non-citizen voters who are able, who will be able to vote in local elections, um, will consist mostly of uh, legal permanent residents, so so green card holder, green card holders, um, as well as people with work authorization. So uh, this could mean dreamers, so DACA recipients as well, um, and and folks, uh, and all folks will have had uh, to live in New York City for at least um, thirty days. Um, and I think this is just advocates see it as another step forward to um, give such a huge uh, group of people um, more power. 
um, and more of a voice in uh, local politics. Um, so New York City now is actually the largest municipality um, in the country to give non-citizens um, the power to vote in local elections. So we'll see next year, you know, how that plays out, but it really is a really a huge step um, nationally right now, at least um, at least 10 municipalities across the country give um, non-citizens the power to vote um, in towns um, in Vermont and including in towns that are in Vermont and Maryland. Um, but New York City but if is you add the them largest. All up, you know, you, you have like uh, like Staten Island and now you have all in New York City having this. It's 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 big. It is. And it's a huge step. For, for that reason, I'm wondering if as has happened in, in some in some ways parallel fights here previously, and particularly with, with, with the push for uh, driver's licenses for undocumented immigrants. And again, with, with the vote, we're talking mostly about uh, um, about green card holders, people have work authorizations and so on. So it's a different group. But if this is potentially a national issue, having been resolved sort of peaceably here, pending court challenges in 2022, when this law isn't yet being implemented, there's a new council that isn't necessarily talking about it, but I could see this, you know, leading segments on Fox News or showing up in, a, in ads for congressional races. Uh, look what they're doing in New York and how they're uh, supposedly diluting citizenship in the franchise. Is that Definitely. a concern? I think that's definitely a narrative um, that could come up. We've seen it kind of come up uh, already even a little bit. Mayor de Blasio, as I said, has expressed um, concerns that this would dilute um, the value of uh, citizenship um, and would dilute the value of um, votes um, for other folks and communities. Um, advocates, on the other hand, however, say that this is not you know, taking away from any groups or, um, you know, taking any voices away, but simply um, adding more um, voices of people who um, pay taxes and contribute to the economy. Um, folks who, uh, during the pandemic, many, many were essential workers and couldn't stay home when other folks could. Um, so advocates, on the other hand, say that this is just, you know, another step forward in giving um, these communities uh, more of a voice. Um, uh, in, uh, you know, their local elections, but it definitely is kind of a narrative of diluting citizenship that we've already seen come up, uh, even with local city council members. Um, so I definitely do expect it um, to come up next year on a national level, especially considering um, the scale and importance of New York, New York City and this being the largest uh, municipality to, to pass the legislation like this so far. Julia McDonald, Nieto Del Rio of documented thank you for joining us uh, again and uh let's keep the conversation going we really appreciate it thank you so much harry f-a-q f-a-q nyc is a production of racket media and a proud member of the brickhouse cooperative of independent journalists and artists we're headquartered at nyu's mcsilver institute for poverty policy and research and recorded this week from the borough of brooklyn a special thank you to our guest this week julia mcdonald nieto del rio of documented our executive producers, Alex Brooklyn and Adam Kamara, mixed and edited this episode. Be well, wash your hands, wear a mask, get a shot, and we'll see you next week.